Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Rev. Dave Kiefer. This evening we're going to be continuing our walk through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Our theme series is In Christ, All Things Hold Together, a main point of Paul's letter. Starting in chapter 1, Paul proclaims that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, that through Jesus God has reconciled all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace uh, by his blood on the cross, peace with God and peace among man. And this peace is granted to all those who turn from their sin and trust in what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul proceeds from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he clarifies that this reconciliation with God secured by Jesus, it not only creates a new legal status, you know, from strangers to saints or from foreigners to family, but also a new spiritual reality. And what is this new spiritual reality? Well, it's clarified there in chapter 1, verse 27, and it's good news. In fact, it is the best news, and it is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, meaning that God is not only with you and for you, but somehow God is now in you through the power of his indwelling spirit. And it's amazing to think, what a mystery to think, how could this invisible God of the universe, by whom and for whom all things were created, live in me? But Paul calls our union with Christ a mystery. Now, that's the understatement of the millennium. And it's a mystery that boggles the imagination, but it really is true. It's a certainty. And our union with Christ is stated again and again throughout the letter of Colossians. And it's characterized by the words, in Christ or in Him. So in chapter 2, walk in Him and be rooted and built up in Him and be filled in Him. And this union with God through Christ is not only personal, like in the singular sense, but it's also corporate. Jesus is pictured as the head of the corporate body, His body, the church. And this church is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. In other words, all those in Christ embody His Spirit and then embody His message and His righteousness and His glory to a watching world. And it is our job to finish the work of restoring all things in Christ. Now, what does this most wonderful mystery mean, Christ in you, the hope of glory? First, it means we have divine power, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory means that the very Spirit of God who brought Jesus from the dead is now at work in you, defeating sin and death. 
and restoring not just you to what you were created to be, but working through you to help restore humanity to what it was created to be. And second, Christ in you, the hope of glory, means we have an unshakable hope, right? That no matter how bad things get or how ugly the world may be, Christ in you, the hope of glory, means that through our union with Christ, we have a deposit guaranteeing all the things that God has in store in that future glory, that inheritance for His people, which we will enjoy forever with Him. So like I said, the theme of Colossians is in Christ all things hold together, which is another way of saying, apart from Christ, everything falls apart. But in Christ, all things are reconciled. We're reconciled to God and to each other. And even the creation itself will be restored to glory. But the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, defies expectations, not just in what it delivers, but in how it comes. I mean, think about it. Really? Like, really, who can comprehend all that God has in store for His people in Christ? Bart Milliard from Mercy Me captured the wonder when he sang that famous worship song, I Can Only Imagine. But it's not just what God has in store that defies expectations, but it's how He brings it about. This kingdom of God isn't so much about going to a magical place where we are transferred to a future glory. Rather, what's pictured most often in Scripture is the kingdom of God breaking into the here and now, slowly but progressively. And the Bible emphasizes the kingdom of God coming to us, breaking into our wicked world. That's its emphasis. Remember, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. In other words, we pray for his glory and His justice and truth and righteousness and grace and mercy to break into our worlds and break down the gates of the world's living hells. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Listen, how the kingdom of God comes is just as mysterious as what it delivers. And we can only imagine what it will be like, like Bart Millard said. But the means and the ends are both mysterious. And so how does this apply? If we don't make room for mystery, we might not perceive the kingdom's coming. We will misunderstand like the zealots of Jesus' day, not recognizing how the kingdom of God advances, or worse, will arrogantly dismiss the kingdom of God when it comes like the Pharisees did, and will completely miss it. But thankfully, we're not left in the dark. We're giving hints as to how it comes, and we can realign our expectations to those hints. Jesus said it himself. He said, when the kingdom of God comes, the kingdom of heaven will be like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the whole dough. There it is again, right? It comes slowly, progressively, but thoroughly. And in Colossians, we see Paul gives us more clues as to how the mystery of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is worked out practically in different areas of life. And Dr. Light focused on the practical implications of Christianity for marriage and for parenting. And this week, we're going to look at Christian, Christianity's implications for the master-servant relationship, or really any relationship where there's a significant authority or power difference. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll talk about the history of slavery, and then study what Paul said and how he applied it, particularly 
in the book of Colossians and Philemon to a master-slave relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word shows us how your kingdom comes, and it comes into our hearts and begins to make us more like Christ. What a glorious, mysterious working But it also comes not just into us to change us, but that it comes into our lives so that we can be agents and instruments in your hands to bring redemption to a broken and suffering world. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word tonight, as we take stock of history, we will rejoice in what you have done to bring your kingdom through your people and to begin to give us a taste of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up in Colossians 3, verses 22, we'll read down through chapter 4, verse 1, and then Tucker is going to be reading all the greetings, but I'm going to just jump into a couple of the greetings so that you can see the context for, um, for the Anisimus relationship with Philemon. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive uh, the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So first I want to talk about the, the, context, the context, the history presently and a little bit over time. So presently, for many modern readers, right, it's difficult to make any headway on verses like these because they seem at best too soft on the sin of slavery and at worst maybe abhorrently oppressive. Critics of the Bible believe that these verses are are dangerous statements that undermine any rationale for the oppressed to resist oppression. The American atheist group campaigns on Bible verses like these, sometimes placing them on roadside billboards to demonstrate the dangers of biblical Christianity. Their campaign reveals something that is necessary to admit— which is Bible-believing Christians, especially during the Civil War, used verses like these to justify the unjustifiable, chattel slavery in America. Now, we must not, you know, be naive. We should recognize that, that both religious and irreligious people throughout history have, have misunderstood and sometimes purposely twisted the Bible to their own ends. And additionally, we should be careful not to presume that, that we living today consist of better moral cloth than previous generations who stubbornly defend it, something that was widely accepted during the day, even though it was cruel and defiling. We would be wise to recognize how some Christians today, we are, we're tempted to stubbornly defend widely accepted institutions, even though we know that they're also cruel and defiling. Presently in America, it's easy to stand against slavery. It doesn't cost us anything. No one's personal life is negatively impacted by taking such a stand. But we were just reminded for this morning, Chris reminded us, it's, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. 
and yet it is awkward for our churches to stand against abortion. Many churches, it's, it's awkward. And those that do are viewed like the abolitionists. They're seen as extreme or impractical or self-righteous. And ironically, the same activists who, who rightly condemn slavery because it dehumanizes certain uh, people to, to justify the abuse of slavery, they don't bat an eye at abortion, which dehumanizes another people group, the preborn, to justify murder. And see, as we recognize, wow, we still wrestle with some of this stuff of standing up for what's right. Hopefully it humbles us. And to be honest, a materialist worldview that's in step with Darwin's survival of the fittest seems more naturally aligned with pro-slavery, pro-abortion stances. And, and as history has shown, the atheistic regimes of Nazi Germany and communist Russia and China easily justified genocide and abuse toward undesirables and doing atrocious things to advance the human race. But the basis for condemning these atrocities was found in the Bible. In the Bible's teaching of the Imago Dei, the idea that humans are created in God's image, and because of that, they have innate dignity and equal rights. And why do I say this? Why am I belaboring this point? Because if you're a modern person who has difficulty with passages like this one in Colossians, I beg your patience and don't get easily offended by you know, your enlightened sensibilities. Hang in there. Because if you do, I believe you will make headway on understanding what this text really means in context and how these verses and the concepts within them in Colossians chapter 3 and 4 were the very ideas that actually brought an end to the institution of slavery. In other words, mysteriously, that's how the gospel always works, these principles became the antidote to slavery's poison. Historically, slavery spanned many cultures and regions from ancient times to recent days. Slavery was institutionalized uh, when the first civilizations emerged at Sumer and Mesopotamia. That was 3500 BC. Slavery is described in the Code of Hammurabi, which is 1750 BC. And as the famous academic Dr. Thomas Sowell wrote, slavery has existed in the world for thousands of years. Whites enslaved other whites in Europe for centuries before the first black was brought to the Western Hemisphere. Asians enslaved Europeans. Asians enslaved other Asians. Africans enslaved other Africans. It's a worldwide problem. Over Christmas, I talked to my first cousin, and he ran up to me and said, guess what, Dave? We're Jewish. <laughs> I had a DNA test, and I'm 37% Jewish, and it all comes from my mom's side, so you're Jewish too. And, and I was so excited to tell Fagel. Um, I was excited, but he said, I said, well, what, did, what else did you learn? He said, well, we're actually from uh, the Slavic region between the Polish-Belarus uh, area. And then as I was doing research on slavery, it, it popped out to me that the modern word for slave derives from the word Slav. The Cambridge Medieval History uh, Volume 2 reports that the oldest written history of the Slavs, and I'm Slavic, Included that they were the most prized of human goods, hardened against all privation, industrious, content with little, good-humored, and cheerful. Slavs filled the slave markets of Europe, Asia, and Africa. In other words, 
For hundreds of years, when people in Europe, Africa, and Asia thought of the word slave, they pictured someone who probably looked more like me than Frederick Douglass. Now, before you feel too sorry for me, I'm also confident that there were racists in my family tree. And like most, my family tree was probably a mixture of the oppressed and the oppressor. But historically, slavery is a worldwide phenomenon, not just a Western or European one. European colonizers, yes, they threw gas on the fire of slavery, but that fire was already raging across Africa and the Americas. Over 30% of pre-colonized Africans were likely slaves, and in some African empires, the percent was higher. Pre-Columbian slavery among the indigenous people in the New World was not uncommon. Most slaves were prisoners of war, criminals, and debtors. In Mayan society, raids on surrounding tribes provided the victims needed for sacrifice and the slaves for temple construction. Those beautiful temples were constructed by slaves. So the question is, if slavery has been here forever and it was ubiquitous and everyone practiced it, the question is, where and when and why did it get abolished? Where was it resisted? And we know that ending slavery took a long time. Historically, the answer to the question is complicated, right? Sporadic efforts started, the first record we have is in 6th century BC, with a Persian emperor named Cyrus the Great, who established the first record of human rights in what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. This lines up exactly with the biblical narrative when he freed 50,000 Jewish slaves in 539 so they could return to the promised land. And it should be noted that Jewish prophets representing Yahweh served in his court. And was this the result of their influence? The law of God has always been written on the hearts of men. So all people know, whether you come from an area that heard about the Mosaic law or not, all people know deep down that slavery is wicked and part of the fall. For no other reason than it violates the golden rule, right? Who wants to be property of another person without any individual rights? And there is some evidence of non-Judeo-Christian culture seeking to restrict slavery, but it is scant. Wang Mang of China, of the short-lived Xing dynasty, instituted sweeping reforms, including abolition and radical land reform. Unfortunately, his reign only lasted four years because of an angry mob that, drew, uh, that threw him out of power and reinstituted slavery. The emperor Hong Wu of the Ming dynasty in China was another exception. He limited the highest-ranking households to less than 20 slaves. So aside from a few common grace movements in Asia, the movement to restrict and abolish slavery was nearly an entirely Christian movement that required the special grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That master who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And somehow that gospel, that good news of that type of master got into people's hearts and minds and began to change the way people thought about this institution. And at the turn of the 7th century, Pope Gregory banned Jews from owning Christians. In the mid-8th century, Pope Zachary banned the sale of Christians to Muslims. And then in the late 9th century, slavery was outlawed in all of Christendom. 
when Pope VIII declared that it was a sin to enslave fellow Christians and he commanded their release. And then for the next centuries, there were various emancipation proclamations. In 1537, Pope Paul III forbids slavery of indigenous people in the Americas and any other people to be discovered. But it wasn't until the abolition of the slave trade through the British Empire in 1807, which was, by the way, spearheaded by evangelical Christians in England that made a real difference, right? That's the story of William Wilberforce, who was a disciple of George Whitfield, who fought tirelessly in Parliament decades to end the African slave trade. Unfortunately, it took a civil war to abolish slavery in the United States, And then in 1865, the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. But only much later would slavery be legally abolished in South America, the Middle East, Asia, and African countries like Ethiopia. What is the condition of slavery today? Though slavery has been legally abolished, it is still practiced around the world. Today, an estimated 27 to 38 million people, we don't know exactly for sure, but various forms of slavery are still, still practiced today, from forced labor to sex trafficking. And like I said, we don't have precise numbers because it's done in secret. But the traffickers are growing bolder, even in the U.S., because law enforcement agents are ill-equipped and sometimes prevented from enforcing the law. Incidentally, research also indicates that the more a nation is saturated with a Judeo-Christian ethic or value, the more likely it is to address the problem of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. There's a whole map of which, which countries are uh, doing this the best, and proportionally those who turn a blind eye to human trafficking tend to hold to Eastern mysticism, Muslim beliefs, or to communistic and atheistic government systems. So that's the long story. That's the context of slavery. Now let's look at what Paul writes about slaves and masters and how he applies it within his context. First, what he says and then what he does. What does he say? Look at verse 22. First, he calls the slaves bondservants. A bondservant was a particular type of servant. In agrarian economies, before there's a trustworthy banking system, debts were paid They were paid off by serving the person to whom you were financially indebted for a specific time. And the one in debt would provide surety, a bond to guarantee that they would fulfill certain obligations. And once they fulfilled these obligations, they were released from the bond. Now, sometimes the bond post-it was for a year of work, sometimes for many years, seven years. The bigger the debt... The longer it took to pay it off, the more years you had to work. The important thing to note is that a bondservant is not a lifelong slave. The master was owed work from the person, but the master did not own the person. Masters could not do whatever they pleased. Even though these Colossian Christians were Gentile converts, see, Paul, who's writing, he knows God's law transcended every culture, including Greco-Roman culture. And he knew God's law forbid man-stealing. Exodus twenty-one sixteen says, whoever steals a man and sells him, as well as anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Right? So according to God's moral law, the punishment for man-stealing was death. 
The slave trader was to be put to death, but not just him. The, the buyer who tried to own a stolen human was also put to death. And then you add to that God's law, uh, which set all debtors free every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, that no matter how big your debt, it was paid off in full. And this prevented the enslavement of one generation uh, being passed on to the next generation. So what, so what does this mean? No one reading through the text or receiving Paul's letter believed that he was justifying man-stealing or generational slavery. Paul was addressing in a uniquely Christian manner the common economic agreements of the day, posting a bond of servants service for a predetermined amount of time which legally paid off the debtor's debt. So how does that apply? No rational argument can be made from these verses to justify lifelong, multi-generational slavery that was common in the U.S. uh, where someone actually owned another person. Next, notice that Paul addresses both slaves and masters, and this is remarkable. He doesn't just remind slaves of their duties but he also reminds masters of their duties. By addressing both parties, he levels the field and demonstrates that each has rights and responsibilities. How so? Well, he reminds both of their responsibility to to God and to the other. Bond servants are to do their work heartily as to the Lord, and masters are to treat servants justly and fairly, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. And he reminds both that God will hold masters and bondservants accountable for their behavior and attitudes, because each has rights, not just the masters, but also the servants. And each has responsibilities, not just the servants, but also the masters. Servants are due fair treatment and just payment, and they are responsible for doing honest work sincerely as unto the Lord. And masters are due honest work and responsible for managing and overseeing their servants fairly and justly. So in these commands, both are given commendations and both are given warnings. Hard work, fairness, and justice are commended with rewards, whereas laziness, favoritism, and injustice are condemned with punishments and threats from God in heaven. So lastly, Paul frames the master-servant relationship as a temporary one. And he does this by giving ascendancy to their family relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Starting in the opening verses of the letter, Paul addresses his letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He drives this home again with his benediction, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, our Father. We are brothers and sisters. Again, family language. And here in Colossians 3.24, Paul says that though some Christians are temporary bondservants, we are all permanent co-heirs. Notice he uses this language of inheritance in 3.24. He says, work for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. And inheritance is only something sons and daughters and siblings receive. So how does this apply? In this life, temporary positions of power and authority are trumped by permanent position and status of belonging to God's family. For seasons, you might be a boss or a leader 
For seasons, you might be an employee or volunteer. For a season, you might be a renter. For a season, you might be an owner. You might be a lender. You might be a debtor. Whether you are in a position of power and authority or one of weakness, Christians are called to do justice and walk humbly, whatever your position. See, every role has certain rights and responsibilities, but ultimately all relationships with other Christians are framed as a brother and sister relationship. Family is the only relationship that lasts into eternity, and we serve our brothers and sisters, and we lead our brothers and sisters. So Paul's application of the gospel here is the poison pill or the antidote that ends the institution of slavery. First in Roman Christendom, and second in the West, where Christianity has had its deepest roots and broadest impact. So how does this apply today, right? Slavery has ended, but there are many other relationships that are inherently, um, have inherent power differentials, and it's, they're not bad, they're just, that's the way it is, a parent-child relationship, a teacher-student relationship, an employer-employee relationship, a, a renter-owner relationship. Every relationship where there is a power or authority difference must be framed by the greater reality of our equal standing and status as those made in the image of God, and we stand before our Heavenly Father. For God holds everyone responsible to do justice and to walk humbly before God and before each other. And neither those in low position or high position are to use self-serving standards at any point. All must follow God's ways. Whether you're a servant or a master, there's no partiality. So whether you're a servant, you need to still use God's standards of service. And whether you're a master, you need to use God's standard of leading and overseeing. And we must remember that all in Christ are children of our Heavenly Father and siblings in, of, of, uh, siblings in Christ. And what's interesting is when Christians lived this out distinctively, they were the light of the world, transforming nations, bringing the glory of the kingdom of God in perceptible ways. So now let's look not just at what Paul says, but what he does. Notice in the final greetings of his letter to the Colossian church, Paul gives several directions. If you um, look at verse 7 to 9, it says he appoints Tychius as the carrier of this letter, and along with him Onesimus, who Paul identified as our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Now, why does he send Onesimus with Tychius to deliver his letter? It's not just because Onesimus is one of you, meaning he's from Colossae, but when we read Paul's letter to Philemon, which was probably a letter that they carried at the same time they carried this to Colossae, this letter to Colossae, we learn that Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. Apparently, Onesimus met Paul while he was on the run from his master Philemon. And Onesimus became a Christian while on the run. And what does Paul decide to do? He decides to send him back to Philemon, who was a Christian and a leader in the house church. And he sends him back with a request in verse 16 of Philemon. He says, receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, 
but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, because how much more to you, especially to me, as a brother to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So instead of this, you know, taking an outside-in approach that is trying to politically upend um, bondservant contracts, Paul decides to take an inside-out approach, asking Philemon to love Onesimus as a brother. And then he says in verses 8 through 16, he says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for the sake of love, I prefer to appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, not by compulsion, but, but of your own accord, that you might have him back as a brother, not a bondservant, right? And here again, instead of taking a top-down approach of commanding Philemon, he takes a bottom-up approach of humbly appealing to Philemon. And lastly, notice that while taking this humble approach, Paul is not weak. Paul is extremely bold toward Philemon. Later he says in verses 18 through 20, if you consider me your partner, then receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'll pay his debt. He says, I, Paul, will repay it to say nothing of you owing me yourself. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. And so I think this is a a legitimate saying, I will pay your debt, but I just want you to remember that you owe your eternal inheritance to me because I preached you the gospel. (laughs) And so what Paul is doing here, he's being very humble but very bold. This is exactly what the gospel is. It is the salt that stops decay. But it's the salt that gets into the wound and it stings, but it brings healing. And so, Paul is very bold because the gospel is true, and he knows that it changes everything. He is confident that the gospel is the antidote to the sinful human condition, and he grounds his appeal for the abolition of this this, uh, bond service in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's thoroughly convinced Jesus is our master who sacrifices life that we might be freed from the penalties we owe God, from the penalty of sin and the power of death. And Jesus, who paid our debt, did so so that we could be forgiven and no longer considered servants, but as brothers. In other words, the gospel changes everything. Protective civil laws would come in time, but hearts need it to change. And the only thing that could change the human heart was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul understood the mystery of the gospel, that it certainly defies expectations, not just in what it is. Who would think that such a master would become a servant so that we who are enslaved to sin could be liberated and free? What, what a glorious mystery. But it's more so not just a mystery in what it is, it's a mystery in how it comes. The kingdom of God is like a little yeast It gets into the whole batch of dough, causing it to rise. And the kingdom of God sneaks past pride and hard hearts and self-serving interests of falling humanity by piercing the, the, the hearts of men with the grace and mercy of God. So in summary, history has shown us that those changed by the gospel were the ones willing to lay down their rights 
and even their life to end the institution of slavery. And sure, there are those who resisted abolition outside the church. That was to be expected because slavery aligns so well with the sin of man and the lust of the flesh. But any inside the church who resisted the, the movement were like those from Israel who resisted the prophets. They, they did so in violation of God's word, not in keeping it. But make, make no mistakes, it was the mystery of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory that was the poison pill, the antidote that eventually killed off the institution of slavery. And praise be to God. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your word and that it heals in every way. And Lord, we long for its healing to continue. Lord, we grieve that there are still forms of slavery, though illegal, still practiced throughout our world. People who don't have freedom of worship, people who are trafficked, people who are treated as merely sexual objects, people who are in forced labor, governments who are oppressive that, that don't do anything to relieve the burdens of their people and allow injustices to go. We pray, Lord, we know that it takes your people who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world to penetrate into these cultures and to change them one heart at a time from the inside out. And as hearts are changed, laws are changed, and justice reigns. Father, we pray in our own culture, we thank you for the setback to abortion, but we pray that we would be a pro-life country, protecting the life and the rights of the most vulnerable. And Lord, help us to continue that fight in humility, appealing to people's conscience, appealing to the image of God in every single conceived human being. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us as we see your kingdom coming, bringing greater liberation, greater transformation, greater glory to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.